This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. So it is presidential debate season. How much do these debates actually matter in this day and age as far as changing minds compared to what we have seen from debates in the past? How could debates be made better? Could we actually start to see presidential election cycles without them? We wanted to dig into this. So for our discussion, we reached out to Ben Berger. He is an associate professor of political science at Swarthmore College, also executive director of the Lang Center for Civic and Social Responsibility. Really interesting conversation. Give a listen. So I guess in this day and age, how important are presidential debates, political debates in general, but we'll focus on, say, at the presidential level for for the purposes of this discussion. Um, I mean, obviously, millions of people watch them, but do they move the needle a lot anymore for voters? There's not a lot of evidence that they do. They can, and they have. And so the question of do they matter really is that it depends. It's hard to answer. It depends on the era. It depends on the mood of the country. It depends on the venue. So a lot of things matter. I think they're unlikely to move the needle very much this year. But there have been times in the past when they seem to have. So it's difficult to answer for sure and for all time. And you mentioned in the past, I know a couple that come to mind are the Kennedy Nixon television debate uh, for Jimmy Carter. Uh, Can you point out some other examples where they debates, presidential debates may have kind of been a flashpoint in the race? Sure. I mean, you mentioned Kennedy Nixon, and that's the one everyone goes to. Even that one, interestingly enough, I mean, this is something that uh, it's not a new point to those who study this sort of thing, but it's difficult to know for sure just how much it mattered because those who watched the debate reported that they generally thought that um, Kennedy won, and those who listened to the radio thought that Nixon won. And that includes, interestingly enough, the running mates, right? So it's actually the case that Lyndon Baines Johnson, the running mate for Kennedy, wad up, listened on the radio and thought that Nixon had won. And it's also the case that Henry Cabot Lodge, who was Nixon's running uh, mate, had a very off-color remark when he said that SOB just lost us the election. He was talking about his running mate, Nixon. He watched it on television. So it's difficult, though, to know, first of all, what impact it had in the polls, that's just, there weren't polls right afterwards where people said, well, I watched the, t- the t- uh, TV viewing of it and I now am voting for Kennedy. It's difficult to know what kind of minds were made up or changed. What we do know is that Kennedy did rise in the polls afterwards. And we do know that he won an incredi- incredibly close election. But even with that one, which is the one that everybody goes to, it's difficult to say just how much of a difference it made. You mentioned, I think, Ford and Carter, and that's sometimes brought up, right, in 19... 19- 76. Ford was unusual in saying yes to a debate because after Nixon, sitting presidents didn't want to have the debates. I mean, they needed to have a special exemption because there was a 1934 Communications Act that said that you, it was the so-called equal time clause, which said that if a broadcaster was going to, you know, put a debate on the air, they had to give all the candidates, including, you know, small party candidates like libertarian and socialist parties, that they had to give them all equal time, and, and broadcasters didn't want to do that. Kennedy Nixon got a special exemption from Congress, but then the rule was back on the books. People could have pushed for it to be changed, but presidents didn't want to. Johnson didn't want to debate, and Nixon in 68 and 72 didn't want to debate. But Ford was open to it, and actually the FCC then changed the rule. 
Ford was open to it because he was behind. He needed to do something. And that's such an interesting debate because it just shows how much, not just perceptions matter, but in an evolving way, the way that media can matter, that media can frame how perceptions are formed at the citizen level. Right, Ford had this line, you can see it on YouTube. I think it's great for people to go before debates like these, these presidential debates and look at some classic moments on YouTube. Ford said that the Soviet Union does not dominate Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is not dominated by the Soviet Union and it never will under a Ford presidency. Uh, and the panelist who asked the question was surprised and said, do I have you right? And Ford repeated that, that he was making a conscious decision, a conscious point, which is that he refused to recognize the legitimacy of the Soviet Union. You can hear that in the rest of his, his answer. The media, though, picked up on it, thought that it was a mistake. And people afterwards who were asked about the debate, who viewed the debate, said they didn't make much of it until and unless they heard all the media talking about it. And then they changed their minds to being it was a mistake for Ford. And we don't know just what would have happened if that hadn't been the case. But Ford kind of stopped his momentum and he wound up not making up any further ground than he had on Carter and he wound up losing the election. So those two, you're right, people point to. Um, Carter, Carter Reagan, uh, people point to as well, right? And the Carter Reagan is interesting in part just because it's not the debate that people all think about that exerted all the influence, right? That Carter refused to debate in the first debate because the League of Women Voters, who was sponsoring the debate, they're all about voter information, right? They want to have all the parties, all the candidates represented. So they include John Anderson, who's an independent. And Carter said, no, I'm not doing that. It's got to just be with the two main candidates. And so he didn't debate in the first debate. And that gave Reagan a great opportunity to lay out a plan of governance, really kind of uninterrupted. He was debating against Anderson, but Anderson didn't have a lot of support. And some people think that actually played a big role in, in Reagan getting people sort of attention and being able to lay out in quick and clear fashion what he was about. But it's the one of Carter Reagan head to head that people all think about, right? The one which is only five days, or six days, October 29th for a November 4th election. And that's the one where Reagan, who was, was a really good debater. People sometimes think about Reagan as just someone who was folksy and could, could um, turn a phrase and kind of appeal because he seemed avuncular, like in an uncle kind of way or a grandfather kind of way. But, but really, he was a good debater. And that's where he's got the one often used line now, but people forget that it comes from Reagan, asking the people, are you better off today than you were four years ago? And he also had that time when he, when he went off script and sort of sighs and says, ah, there you go again. And what people forget about that line, and it seemed to have made a difference and it really stuck in the popular imagination, is that Carter was trying to pin him down and criticize Reagan for having been against Medicare in the past as well as other uh, um, social programs. And he also, he, Carter, said that he wanted to put out a kind of national health insurance and Reagan would be against that. Well, Reagan's line, there you go again, was actually a sub, followed by a substantive point. He was disagreeing with Carter that he was just against Medicare. He said there was a different plan that he was for. And so if you really looked at the whole record, what Carter said was misleading. So it was, number one, a very kind of folksy remark that was off script and really won him points, it seemed like but it was followed by a substantive point too. Um, but as far as other debates that mattered, I mean, I think one that's interesting that doesn't get talked about with presidential debates is 1980, the primary race. 
And that was Reagan and, and uh, George H.W. Bush, who eventually became his vice president and then president of his own. And to me, what's so interesting about that debate, I also just, I really suggest that our listeners check them out on YouTube if they've never heard them before or haven't heard them for a long time or read, uh, seen them for a long time. Because what's interesting to me is they're very long answers. They're thoughtful answers. And they're substantive in a way that I think would be unrecognizable for a lot of present day Republicans. So this is Bush who becomes president, Reagan who becomes immediately the president, who are Republicans that a lot of Republicans I think now look back fondly on, and yet their answers, for example, on immigration policy, I think would be absolutely unrecognizable today's, today's Republicans. I think a lot of people would, would hear and watch those responses and think that they were being given by Democrats and they didn't know who they were being given for. But that debate mattered. It, it, it contributed to Reagan uh, solidifying his lead and, and you know, solidified the outcome, which he won the, um, the nomination to become the presidential candidate and eventually the president. I think sometimes debates have made a difference, even if it hasn't affected the outcome of the whole election. So Obama in 2012, people sometimes point to as a sort of subpar performance against Mitt Romney in the first debate. He really didn't seem to be performing at the level people were used to seeing him at it, and, and Romney uh, did quite well. Now, Obama made it up in the, the second and third, especially the third uh, debate seemed to do better and other things happened too. There was a hurricane going on and, and Romney didn't keep his momentum. But in that first one, that seemed to affect opinion poll. So again, it can make some difference, but did they make a big difference to voters in 2016 or will they this year? And that's pretty unlikely because the number of undecided voters is really low, it seems like. Yeah, that kind of, we're such a polarized country. I feel like the debates now are, I don't want to say framed, but uh, it's only downside for the candidates. It seems like the, the biggest thing looked at isn't policy, isn't what could be done. It's the moment that can be used against the candidates in commercials and ads and stuff like that. And uh, I don't feel like we get a lot of policy out of the debates anymore, our ideas of where we're going as a country. That's right. Because it's because it's what perceptions are, what matter. And so it's what people perceived happened or what policy was talked about. Now, I do think the candidates try in general to keep the promises they make in debates, like try hard to do it, but it, it doesn't mean they're going to do it. So there's not a lot of place for real policy to be laid out. And if you've got a second term, someone running for a second term like Trump, there's not that much of incentive even to tie things to policy, what's actually going to happen at all. Because once you win, you can't, at least currently in the current constitutional system, have a third term. And so if you win, you might be seen as just say, I'm going to do what I want to do. But the big part of it is just the format. These are these 30 second and 60 second answers that people are given for. And it's really rare to hear somebody go for 60 seconds, at least not without being interrupted. But that period is a long period of time. And, you know, it's so different from the Nixon-Kennedy debate, which is very long form answers. I think it's a great idea for folks to listen to the audio files of those, because it's a very substantive debate with very long and informed and informative answers. And that's totally different from the format that's given now when we try to figure out what's going to make good TV and what's going to keep eyeballs on it, right? And of course, 
sometimes people in these conversations talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which weren't really presidential debates, they were senatorial debates. But just the format was so different before mass media, right? Three hours long, a 60-minute opening salvo by the one candidate, they alternated, and then 90 minutes for the second candidate, and then a 30-minute chance for rebuttal from the other. I mean, that's just inconceivable now for people, for an audience, to spend that much time listening and focusing. And so with that, and with the shorter time being given, which goes along with a shorter attention span, I think, for audiences, you're not going to get substantive answers. You're going to get people trying to either look presidential or look imposing or look something in a way that they determine is what the, the viewers need to see and hear, the viewers that they need to win over. Is there a sweet spot where we could make these debates better, more informative, that we would still be able to give the networks what they want from a TV standpoint, but do the voters more of a service of flushing out what the candidates are trying to bring to the table? Have, have you kind of, you know, I don't know, war game this, but kind of push what you would like to see in, in debates in our day and age? It's a great question. And I think if there was an easy answer for it, it would be done. It would be talked about. And we would have heard a lot about that. But, uh, you have to have, number one, somebody's willing to show that debate. Number two, you've got to have two candidates willing to show up for it and each feel that they've got something to gain or not too much to lose in showing up for it. And of course, you've got to have people, the citizens who are willing to watch it and pay attention and, and be open to being swayed. And those three things cannot be taken for granted to coincide. If you, if you just said to me, like, uh, all right, what would you like to see? And I could say an off-the-cuff remark that's not really very serious, but still gets at some of the things you need to fulfill. I might say something like the NBA All-Star Game, which has got a skills competition. What's going on in those debates has very little to do, I believe, with how a president is able to govern how a president is able to conduct foreign policy, to listen to, to choose and listen to advisors, to conduct him or herself with other heads of state, to be able to work with Congress people behind the scenes, to push for different kinds of policies. Those things, that's just not what's on display in these 30 and 60 second um, sound bites. So if you really wanted to have something that could be interesting, yeah, instead of having people having a passing competition or skills comp three-point shooting competition, which itself doesn't really determine, of course, who's a good basketball player because there are people who are specialists who aren't the best basketball players but can do that thing, but they're relevant to, to playing excellent basketball. So you could have something where uh, these candidates are filmed some way actually having to talk to, negotiate with heads of state in simulations of these sorts of things, talking to members of Congress, sitting with advisors, listening to them, choosing them, and so on. It's not going to happen. But that's my, if there were a video game of that, I would play that. Then again, I'm a political scientist. You mentioned John Anderson as an independent. Would we, and I know this, the chances of this are remote, but would we be better served not having everybody on the stage that's on a ballot anywhere, but some of the higher more higher profile, smaller parties like Libertarian, like Green, would we be better served to have them on stage? Would it make everyone better? And because I feel like one of the arguments and I've got friends who are big third party people yes. who push, you know, well, it's not fair that so-and-so is not allowed on the stage. And then 
the rebuttal is, well, they have to have a certain amount of the vote share to get on the stage. Well, they can't get the vote share if they don't get the exposure. And it's kind sure. of this feedback or this loop that you can't get out of. Yes. Would it, do you think we'd be better served uh, having more points of view on the stage uh, on a regular basis? I'm going to say no, but with an asterisk. I absolutely hear the people who say that. I have friends as well. Who, have, who are either, let's say, libertarian sympathizers or those who, who, who want something that's further to the left, Green Party and so on. And, and, I, and these are serious people who absolutely feel with good reason that their, their causes, their issues, their approaches aren't being taken seriously at a policy level. So why then would I say no? And then what's the asterisk? It's because without something like a parliamentary system, I think, with a two-party system in which Congress is not going to have anybody to work with those people if they were to even win. Um, it would be a very difficult thing, first of all, to see still how somebody could do anything other than play spoiler. They might be able to push one candidate to the left or to the right. And I think there are, there are people who are followers of those smaller parties might be satisfied with that. But they also can change the course of an election in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect what a majority of the people want. You can think of Ross Perot in this in the regard in 1992. Perot almost certainly siphoned off more votes from Bush than he did from Clinton. Clinton wins a plurality, but becomes the president. Um, and so that's a very difficult situation. It's not really clear if you did, if you asked people individually, okay, do you prefer this person against this person? Now, this person against this person. Now, what is your overall favorite outcome? It's not clear that we'd get the result that we got. So we're not, I think, set up as a system to, uh, to have that kind of time dedicated to, th to those other parties. But I am not at all against there being something like a parliamentary system. We've got a very narrow band of political opinion and policy in this country that really puzzles people from Europe, for example, where there are parliamentary systems, where it's thought that, well, what the U.S. has is not 31 flavors, but really something like either one scoop of vanilla or two scoops of vanilla. So again, that's my sympathizing with folks who say that, but it's very difficult to see how also how debates wouldn't just become something like a free-for-all when all the debates are put out there. There's an episode of Parks and Recreation in which uh, Leslie Nope is running for the city council of Pawnee, Indiana. Now it's a tiny election in a small city. It really wouldn't get the kind of attention that it did, but it's a TV show. And there are people from across, across the spectrum, and it's very difficult to keep track of all those folks, just like it was in the Democratic primaries and those debates in the 80s when there were so many candidates and, and difficulties sorting out who was saying what. So, yeah, I hear that. That's uh, a frustration. And I think the system that we're in right now is not built to handle that frustration. So when we look at this debate season, I think regardless of what side you're coming from, we didn't get much out of that first presidential debate. The second one gets canceled because the, the president was ill and we ended up with those dueling town halls and uh, we are awaiting the third and, and final presidential debate. Well, when you look at the calendar, from a debate standpoint, we didn't get much. Are we that far removed from a point where candidates say, you know what, it's not worth it. I don't feel like they don't want to fight over moderators or whatever. And we, the best we get are those town halls. Anything can happen. Hard to predict the future. It, it is instructive, I think, to realize how recent of a, a thing televised presidential debates are. Right? They started with the, the Nixon-Kennedy debate. I mean, there are, there are little precursors in the 50s 
in the 50s. In 1956, you have a proxy presidential uh, debate um, with Eleanor Roosevelt um, and then the, the, um, the uh, Margaret Chase Smith, who was a senator from Maine, debating his proxies for uh, Eleanor Roosevelt for Adlai Stevenson II and Margaret Chase Smith proxy for Dwight Eisenhower. So, but that was it before then. And so it wouldn't be completely unthinkable to not have them because until recently we didn't have them. That said, I think debates do serve a function. They do a function to provide some information, to galvanize people's kind of enthusiasm, to crystallize their views. And so if they're thought by both parties, right, by, by the, both candidates to be viable, then I think they'll continue. If only one of them wants to do it, it's difficult to have. We saw that this year where the one person shows up and the other one doesn't, and that can be either candidate, and it's not going to happen. So I don't think it would be disaster if they didn't happen. I think we learned some things from the town halls and got to see the, the presidential candidates as individuals who are articulated in their positions. I also don't think that presidents spend all that much time debating during their administration. The president is the strongest voice in the room when the president is having a briefing session. So the president could choose to listen a lot to her or his advisors, but doesn't have to, and certainly doesn't need to debate with them. So the relevant skill of being able to score points isn't really that informative. So that's my way of saying that I, I wouldn't be surprised if they continued as long as the candidates view them as something where I need to be out there getting my message out there, as long as it's fairly close, as long as there are undecideds out there. But if we continue this sort of tribal politics, and I say that without any, it's a descriptive term, not something that is meant to denigrate sort of people of, in either party, but it's a description that's come about for political scientists over the last four years to say that we were so polarized because people really feel like they're members of different tribes and emotions come into play and gut feelings come into play and senses of identity come into play. And it's very difficult then to generate lots of undecideds because it's really not policies so much that are on the table. It's your tribe. And so if we were to continue eras of tribal politics in which people pretty much know what they're going to do beforehand, then I think it's certainly possible that people could decide not to have debates down the road. And as I mentioned, we are awaiting the third and final presidential debate. Uh, I mentioned that so far we really haven't gotten a lot out of debate season. Uh, as you look at this third one, what should people that want debates to matter look for in the final one? Well, it's really interesting. Hard to have a crystal ball. I don't think many people would have predicted just how the first debate went. But this is one of those cases where one candidate does have um, sort of nothing to lose. If the polls are to be believed, Trump is significantly behind. Now, it always could be the case that there are lots of people who are not being captured in those polls and that they're going to turn out and or that battleground states will narrowly go for Trump and he could do something like what he did last time. It's always possible. But if the polls matter, he's behind. And so he's got to be aggressive and have nothing to lose. It therefore becomes Biden is the person who's got something to worry about because he's the one in the lead. He's got something to lose. He needs to be able to stay the course and withstand whatever Trump can throw at him. It's really undecided voters that these two candidates are going to, have to be going after. And that's, that's always the case, I think, in these debates, at least as they've evolved in the televised era. But it's now more than ever. And that means, too, it's not just undecided voters. It's undecided voters in battleground states, battleground states that are seen as mad, mattering. And that, um, that gets very granular. 
by which I mean that these, the candidates and their advisors realize, well, it's specific kinds of voters in specific states on specific issues and those people who we think we can maybe mobilize to get out there and vote. And that is not the whole of the country. And so that means their strategy might not be what any of us is exactly looking for because they know who they're trying to target. I don't think democracy is terribly well served by that sort of strategy. It's not the fault of the candidates and their advisors. That's the system we're living in right now. But I think if we, uh, it's what I would look out for is, again, this pitch towards undecided voters. And as difficult as it is to think that there are undecided voters in battleground states right now, apparently there are some. If I had to make one kind of prediction, it is this, that those people who are polled afterwards, who say that they were undecided, and then say, well, either now my mind is either made up or not made up, that really they're likely to vote for Trump or not to vote for all. And the reason I say that is, is because after the first debate, which I thought was fairly striking, and, and, and it seemed to me that, uh, I mean, I have my own political views about it, but I thought that it was certainly a kind of debate that would leave people with strong opinions. And yet, apparently, the people who said they were undecided beforehand also, when polled afterwards, said, well, it didn't really change the needle for me. I think for someone to be able to say that, it means that they had some reason not to want to say, well, I'm going to vote for Biden, simply because Trump was very aggressive and interrupted a lot. And again, somebody can love Trump, and that's fine. Somebody, any listeners out there can say, I love Trump, I'm going to vote for Trump regardless. But those behaviors had not been seen beforehand in, 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 in debates. And so it's my opinion, just as a guess here, that anybody who said, well, I was undecided and I'm still undecided, was really saying, well, I... I'm not going to say that I'm going to vote for Biden and therefore nothing is going to persuade me. And so either I'm going to vote for Trump or not at all. And I'm very interested, interested to see after this coming debate's performance uh, exactly what the undecided say, because that's who both candidates are pitching for. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.